Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. We've been walking through the five uh, acts of God's big story, and we've been sitting with this idea that we need a larger story than what our little lives uh, sometimes uh, are. Sometimes we get so caught in the little details of our lives, and they become all-consuming, and we need to be reminded that there is a bigger story, and that in the midst of my small circumstances, as important, as sacred, as profound as those are, there are also these wide countries of grace and redemption and resurrection that we are invited into. And so, uh, by way of doing that, we've been trying to expand ourselves into the story of God and looking at the story in these five acts. Act one, creation. Act two, the fall, where sin enters the picture, death enters the picture, and then we're reminded that God does not give up on his promise, and that he is going to find a way to redeem this story still, and then Jesus arrives at Christmas. And when Jesus arrives, we see God. We see God unveiled. We see God disclosed. It's called aletheia in Greek, this revelation, this disclosure, this unveiling of God. And now we also see God's story in a way that we could not see before. And so when we hold up anything, whether anything in Scripture or anything in our own lives, into the light of Christ, it suddenly takes on new significance, new shape, new meaning, new form, and we are changed. And so what we're trying to do in this season after the Epiphany is hold up everything into the light of Jesus and say, how is Jesus re- not only restoring all things, but restoring all things? How is he changing what the narrative means to make it even more broad, even more redemptive, even more inviting? And so we've been going back through the acts of this story one by one and holding them up into the light of Jesus, which is how I recommend we all read our Bibles, that every story, if you're reading Leviticus or if you're reading Luke, that you're holding the story up into the light of Jesus to see what Jesus has to say about it, because uh, Jesus says all of it points to him. And so we've been going back through these acts and asking, how is Jesus restoring this act in light of who he is and who God is? And so a few weeks ago, we talked about creation and the ways that Jesus recreates the world. And then we looked at Act 2 last week. We, we sat with how Jesus restores the fall. We fall away from God, and then God falls to us in the incarnation uh, and ultimately on Holy Saturday to make a way for us to come back to God. This morning, we're going to sit with Act 3. This promise of God to not give up on his creation, and this promise is ultimately made up of three mini-promises, that there is a promised people of God set aside to image God in the world. And then also, God has a promised place for them, and that place in the Old Testament uh, means one thing, but now God has new places to invite us. We'll look at that as time goes on, and then ultimately, there is a promise of a Messiah who will make all things right again. And so we're going to start today by saying how does Jesus restore these promised people of God, uh, and, and what, does he, what does he have to say in their story? We'll do this a little different today. I'm going to talk for a few minutes. We're going to sing a song, and then I'll finish reflecting on the other side of that. So last week, we talked about how sin spreads 
from the story of Adam and Eve all the way to the Tower of Babel story, we see this exponential increase of the power of sin and death moving us away from the way of love that is God. And that's Genesis 1 through 11. But then we turn the page to Genesis 12. And when we do that, we get this massive zooming in on the story. We find this one little guy in this one little place. His name is Abram. And God says, starting with you, I'm going to begin setting aside a people for myself, that they might image God in the world, that those people might not only receive the image of God, but then mirror and mediate that image to the world around them so that the world might be invited to be restored again. And so God makes this covenant with Abram and his descendants who become the people of Israel and, and then later the church. And the idea seems to be that God is always choosing people. He's not choosing them because they're particularly special. He's not choosing them because they're uniquely talented. He is choosing them because God needs people to image God in the world. It is important that we understand it's not that these people are elected and everybody else is rejected. That would be to miss the heartbeat of the story. Instead, it's that they are picked out, chosen, set aside, that, that they will become the conduit through which God will continue to pursue relationship with all people. But he's going to start with these people. They have this particular calling and task to be the first ones to taste the great feast of the love of God and then invite others to come to that feast. And so that's what God is up to in the choosing of Abram, that they, people of God, these promised people of God, might pass the peace and love of God onto the world around them. And so that first part of God's promise is that, the set-apart set promised people of God. And I wonder as we sit in Epiphany, how is Jesus restoring these people and uh, restoring us? There's lots of different ways we could think about that, lots of different ways we could look, about, look at that. In fact, the entire New Testament is sort of speaking to that question. What does it mean now in light of Jesus? But this morning, what I want to do is use some imaginative exegesis. I want to have some kind of midrash imagination and meditation on these two stories in Scripture that are set thousands of years apart, and how might it be that they are in conversation with one another? How might it be that Jesus the Word is speaking through a story from the Old Testament and a story of his own life in the New Testament in order to show us how redemptive this big story is and how wide the promise of God is to set all things right again? And so that's what we're going to do. Story one is the story of the Ten Commandments. And uh, you may notice when we went through Old Testament stories earlier, we did not talk about the Ten Commandments. And that feels like a pretty glaring omission, right? This is a big part of the Old Testament story, uh, the Torah. Uh, and there's a lot that we could say about the Ten Commandments. Uh, we don't have time to do exhaustive analysis or comprehensive commentary on the Ten Commandments, but I wanna start by just simply noting the context by which they come to us. This is uh, a God who says these words to people he is in deep relationship with and committed to journey alongside. This is the problem when we take the Ten Commandments, pluck them out of context, and set them on a courthouse lawn. What we've done is now, we've, we've just imposed rules on people outside of the invitation to journey with God, who is the one who gives us those words in the first place. And so when God gives the Ten Commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, right? That is the context. I have delivered your story. I am meaningfully involved in your salvation. 
that you might come home to be my promised people. And it's out of that that he then gives these words. And then notice that they are not actually called the Ten Commandments. In fact, in Hebrew, they're much closer to be calling the Ten Words. These are words from God that are spoken to God's people. It's as if God is saying, because I am your God and because you are my people, I have invitations and wisdom for you such that you might live a holy and redemptive life in this world. And because of that, I want to tell you how you might be invited into a wholeness of life. That's what's going on here. I love some of these quotes that help give us some quick context for this. Elizabeth Webb says the Ten Commandments are meant to form Israel as a sacred community, a community rooted in right worship of God and living in justice and peace with one another. The Israelites are to live as neighbors to one another, the foundation of which is knowing the God to whom they belong. And then this next one gets at this even closer. There's an internal logic in the commandments that is both compelling and beautiful. The way we attend to God shapes the way we attend to our neighbor. We eat the bread and drink the wine, but help us love our neighbor, right? In other words, faithful worship of God leads to proper love of neighbor. And then finally, Walter Brueggemann says that these commands might not be taken as a series of rules, but rather a proclamation in God's own mouth of who God is and how God shall be practiced by this community of liberated slaves. I love that idea that we decide how are we going to practice God together in community. And that's sort of what these, these uh, words, these commandments are getting at, is here's how we're going to commit to practice God together. Okay, there's a handful of ways to read these ten words, but I want to draw two out over the months ahead. The scholars that study this notice this parallel to a type of treaty that was signed between kings and their subjects, and we're going to look at that more in the season of Lent, this idea of a kingdom that we are invited to participate in. But there is also, and this is what we'll look at today, a deep and enduring rabbinic tradition that what is going on at the Ten Commandments is an image of a wedding, a wedding between God and God's chosen people. And I wonder how it may change the way we think about the words of the Ten Commandments if we saw them instead as ten wedding vows, if we saw them as God in relationship with his people coming toward the people in order to say, I am vowing, I am making a promise, Act 3, promise, in order to covenantally be in relationship with you. We're going to find that the text is loaded with wedding imagery. It's all in there. Right? It begins with this idea of, of, of a betrothal, a calling, a chosenness, a covenant. God says to his people in Exodus 19, I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, my promise, my vow, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. Again, we see that imagery right there, a kingdom, and what is that kingdom's role? It is to mediate, to be priests of God to the world around them. And so there is that word covenant. Traditionally, this is a ketubah, which is the contract that details the terms of the marriage. There would be the sense of the bride price. There would be the sense of where are we going to live together? What's our promised land going to be? There would be this idea that, uh, that we need to define what happens in the event of infidelity. And then ultimately, a covenant would be cut 
where there would be this, this sacrifice and the person initiating the covenant would walk between the sacrifice in order to communicate that I would sooner die than fail my end of the covenant. And ultimately what we find is God walking between that sacrifice and we know that God does ultimately die in order to keep this covenant. And then we see all this imagery continue. There's a bridal acceptance of the covenant. We find in Exodus 19, God says, uh, or the people respond to God. In Exodus 19, 8, they say, we will do as the Lord says. Like, yes, we agree to this marriage covenant, right? And then there's a period of bridal consecration in the next verse. They go and purify and prepare. The bride gets ready for the big day. There's a wedding canopy that's a deep part of the Jewish imagery of a wedding, right? And instead, what we read is that there's this great cloud, this covering, this, this pillar that comes over uh, the people at the Ten Commandments scene. The groom arrives by lit torch, and in the scriptures what we read is that there is lightning that is flashing all around this scene. The bride processes. Moses arrives up the Mount of Sinai. There is an exchange of vows, which is the Ten Commandments, and, uh, and then the response to them. And there's more imagery. There's a blessing, seven blessings, which we see in in the Passover blessings, and finally, seven long days of partying and feasting and celebration, because the best part of a Jewish wedding is the long, long party that comes after. And so God is wed to his promised people, and 10 vows are exchanged, and to celebrate, there's this week-long party that foreshadows the feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb. What I want to do is pause here for a moment. I'm going to invite you to stand as you're able. We're going to remember that we are those promised people invited to a wedding feast, invited to a God who makes covenant with us, and that all will be well in the end. So let's enter that wedding celebration. And we will feast in the house of Zion.
you can be seated. Feels like an abrupt ending to a song that just started. Because that's how it is. The wedding feast is just underway, and then all of a sudden the rousing song of the celebration comes to an end because every vow that we made, every one of those ten vows, pretty soon we've broken and betrayed. And it takes 47 days for the people of Israel to go build a golden calf on the other side of this event, right? And boy, that's pretty long. It probably would have taken me a lot less time, right? This is what we do. This is what we do. We say, yes, God, I want to be a part of of your work to renew all things. I want to make some new commitments. I want to be a part of this. And then soon enough, We go and we break and we betray the vows we've made. And so they build this golden calf. It's a them-sized God. It's an idolatrous revelry. The calf is the picture of dead worship that we read in Isaiah 58. It's like all the ways in which we, we come and we participate in this religious experience, this spiritual ecstasy, but we forget to actually have it show up in the way that we treat others, the way we open ourselves to God. And so that is always this danger for us in Alpharetta, Georgia, the affluent suburbs. It is so easy to come here to eat the bread, to drink the wine, but not to experience heart change such that my life is more open to loving the person in front of me and that my heart is more open toward God. We have these golden calf experiences. And the broken vows aren't only matters of morality. That's how we tend to think about them. They're not only matters of morality or matters of commitment. I think often they are perhaps failures of hospitality, failures of justice, failures of loving kindness. We come to the feast and forget to love our neighbors. And so God's children then, just like God's children now, we try to embody this new creation, this new covenant, this new commitment, new lives, and then we falter. And we live reckless and selfish and scared and small, and we retreat to Egypt and we circle the wilderness over and over and over. We keep serving our own interests and building gods that meet our own needs. And soon enough, the prophets pick up this sort of image And they keep referring back to the wedding, but now they call Israel a harlot, right? You've whored after other loves, lesser words, lesser ways of being in the world. And uh, where do we we get left at this point, right? What happened to the great marriage? What happened to that great feast? What happened to that beautiful calling? Where are we now? We are ashamed, that's where. We are empty-handed before God. We sit here and we realize, I did not bring enough to my covenantal vow, and I don't know how to, because something inside me seems to keep on breaking, keep on being inadequate. And God's promised people need restoring. God's promised people need restoring. And thankfully, the prophets point to that too. Look at what we get in Jeremiah The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a new wedding vow, a new promise with the house of Israel. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. 
But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, not on stone tablets, but within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Or look at how Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 54. He says, do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Here they are ashamed. Here they are feeling inadequate. And he says, you will not be ashamed. Do not be discouraged. You will not suffer disgrace, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the disgrace of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God, the whole earth, the God of the whole earth he is called. Look at how it says it here. The Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, like the wife of a man's youth when he is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I abandoned you. You made this golden calf, and I, and I had the reaction that we all would have for a brief moment. I abandoned you, but with great compassion, I will gather you in overflowing wrath for a moment. I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your redeemer, a new wedding covenant, compassion, despite my empty hands, despite my golden calf, redemption, and then a millennia later, John starts telling stories about this guy, Jesus, and he says, he describes how Jesus begins his ministry. And he leads seven days up to the first event in Jesus' ministry. And what we know about John is that whenever he says something in seven days or seven numbers, we have to pay attention, right? We talked about that a few weeks ago. Seven is this number where something's about to be healed, something's about to be redeemed, something's about to be made new. It's brought out of the darkness and death and into fresh resurrected light. Something's about to be restoried. So what does Jesus do on this seventh day, the first act of his entire ministry? He goes to a wedding. He goes to a wedding. And we don't know much about the wedding at Cana. We know it's the first sign of Jesus. It's the first way that God, through Jesus, chooses to introduce himself to the world. But the other thing we know is that there's this fairly raucous reception going on. There's this fairly big party going on. There's lots of excitement, lots of celebration. The music is playing, and then suddenly it grinds to a halt. And why does it grind to a halt? Because they've run out of wine, right? And we know that when the wine stops, the party stops. <laughs> and uh, in that moment, what we have is not just a picture of uh, a, an event planning mistake. This is not just a social faux pas. The groom had one job to do, one job, and it was to make sure that there was enough for the wedding celebration to go on. The groom's role was to ensure that the party would continue. And so to run out of wine is not just, oops, we ran out of wine. It is to say, I did not care about this day enough to do my part. It is to say, I am not prepared as your husband to provide for you, right? It symbols something much deeper. And so what we have is a groom in front of his entire community, because these were community events, having just radically failed moments after his wedding. It's a picture we've heard before. And so 
It's his fault. He didn't care enough to take this moment seriously. He didn't care enough about the covenant vows he had just made. His failure and foolishness are on full display. He's exposed in front of everyone, just like Israel was after the wedding. And what does Jesus do? He slips into a back room. He finds six jugs full of water for ceremonial cleansing, for purification rites. And you all know the story. He turns them into wine. Really good wine. 900 bottles worth of wine. And he serves them up to people who were likely already buzzed and the party continues, right? And this is the first sign of the kingdom of God in the world? Jesus turning water into wine. It's Jesus' first well-calculated move to mark that a new world has arrived. And so I hope that we might understand that this is not just some quippy miracle sideshow at a wedding. And this is not just about one silly little groom way back then. What is happening here is Jesus, as an epiphany sign, is reversing a wedding story that has gone terribly wrong. He is peeling back the shame, the failure, the inadequacy of one of the wedding partners who did not bring enough to the party and saying, I have a way to restore and make this story right again. It's as if he is saying that where we have broken and betrayed every vow, perhaps he's remembering that first great wedding back at Sinai, and he's saying, in your lowest moment, I have new best wine to bring. And the story is transformed. It's as if Jesus says, what has happened to the wine has happened to you has happened to me, has happened to us, has happened to our world, such that the story that has gone so wrong in our empty and unfaithful hands might be put back on the right track again. And whenever he talks about the kingdom of God for the rest of his life, Jesus tells stories of weddings. And I think the idea here, theologically, is that Jesus fulfills Israel's vocation. Right? What Israel could not be enough for, what they could not live up to, where they were inherently unable to be faithful to the covenant, Jesus fulfills and brings more than enough to the feast, right? And I think what's going on here is at a spiritual formation level, wherever my shame Wherever my inadequacy, wherever my story has gone wrong, I find Jesus is bringing enough to the party to set things right and let the party continue again. He will be enough. And what's going on here at a vocation level is that we remember that 900 bottles of wine is way too much to keep to ourselves. And if my story is made right... And if our story is made right, it is not just that we are chosen and blessed, it's that we are chosen and blessed and then we're broken by the things of this world and then we are restored and put back together that we might be given as bread and wine for the sake of the world. And so the whole point, we recall, of being the promised people of God is that we might be the promised people of God who then shine that promise to the whole wide world and invite others to the feast so that we might eat the bread and drink the wine, and love our neighbors. That's the call this morning, that we might be restoried as God's promised people. So what I want to invite us to do as we begin to come toward this table, uh, as you're able, just stand with me. And we're going to take a moment to confess here. Confession feels like an appropriate next step. 
will confess how often we have not loved God with our whole heart and we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. And I want to remind us that confession is not about feeling bad about ourselves. Confession is not about just feeling shame. It's not about just saying, oh, I screwed up. What's happening in confession is a recognition and a noticing of how often I am pulled toward the golden calf of lesser words and lesser loves, and I I make my allegiance with them and forsake the promise. And it is to say that if I confess that, I might hear the assuring words of God that say, and I have brought enough to the party, though you could not, and I have made a way for you to come home and be with me again. Compassion and redemption win the day. So let us confess our sins against God and neighbor. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And may Almighty God have mercy on us. May he forgive us of all of our sins. May he speak the redemption word over you, that he is enough, that he is doing enough, that he is at work enough, that he is faithful enough to restore the promise and to bring you back into the Father's house of love again. You are forgiven You are at peace with God. Now go pass that peace to the world around you.